I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. Do you ever wish you knew more about the Bible? In today's episode, we talk about what the Bible is and how to incorporate it into your daily prayer life. Jenna, uh, what are you doing for Halloween? What are you going for Halloween as? Are you dressing up as anything? I am not, but Adelaide is dressing up as a unicorn. Oh, nice. I was thinking about going as a skeleton, but I have no body to go with. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Nobody! <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 30. Um, Jenna, you want to start with your Joy Junk Jesus? Yes. My joy was that this weekend I got to spend the weekend with my parents and my sister. Um, we got to go down to go down. <laughs> what the heck is that? <laughs> Hold on. Um, go down to just San Juan and walk around and have fun and drink coffee and go and see um, animals. And Adelaide got to go to her first petting zoo. Mm. She had nothing to do with the animals, but <laughs> it's okay. My junk um, is just that. My husband has been sick, so prayers for him, because that's been really hard. Um, but my Jesus is really simple and kind of silly. Um, last week I was talking to a teen, and I was locking up the church, and my key got stuck. And I was telling her about how um, whenever she feels just any kind of oppression or feeling funny... Um, she can say in the name of Jesus, be gone Satan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we were talking about that and I was kind of joking because my key literally was stuck and she even tried it. She's like, yeah, that's not coming out. And I said, in the name of Jesus, be gone Satan and let my key go. (laughs) And any, what did I say? Patron saint of stuck keys, help. (laughs) And my key literally fell out. That's awesome. So it was kind of just a reminder that Jesus is present in even the simplest things and the smallest things. And we can still pray to him and ask to him for even those small things and not feel silly about it. Um, So it was my joy, Jesus. Nice. Um, my joy, I feel kind of sad saying this, but I had a retreat, um, this past weekend and my joy is that it's over because not that it was bad. It was a great retreat, but I was experiencing so much spiritual warfare leading up to this particular retreat and in ways that I had never experienced before. So it was very, very difficult. So that's kind of my junk along with the fact that, uh, I did not sleep well this past weekend. So retreat was the previous weekend, but this past weekend I did not sleep well at all. So I'm still a little tired. Um, my Jesus moment is, you can probably hear my daughter is starting to talk, um, so it's awesome to hear her little coos and things like that. Um, but another simple Jesus moment, I had a confirmation meeting the other night, and every single teen showed up, and that has never happened. So it's just cool to see that they're willing to be there and all making it a priority, and that it all worked out for them, every single one of them to be there. There's not a single kid absent, which was so awesome. crazy. Um so yeah, um, so today on this episode, um, intermittently we're interrupted by baby noises. We're going to be talking about scripture. Um, we're talking about how to get started with scripture, uh, what it is, how to start reading it, um, and maybe just a simple way to start incorporating that into your life. So the first thing I think then to ask is why should we read scripture in the first place? Like why is scripture important? Why is scripture important? Well, it's probably the best 
book ever written, first of all. It's a love story. <laughs> it's a war story. It's a tragedy. It's it's everything that um, literature is <laughs> in one book. But it's also how we come to know who our Lord is, who Christ is, um, and just that love that he has for us. Yeah, I mean, the Bible is one of the most significant, if not the most significant, written work in history. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're listening to this and you're like, well, you know, the Bible, that was about things that happened thousands of years ago, or that's from a faith tradition that I'm not sure I really even agree with. I mean, you can't deny the fact that Western society as a whole has been completely influenced by this book. And even beyond Western society, like the world, almost the entire world has been touched by this book and the message that it contains. And so there's a reason why it's been translated into every language known to man, including Klingon from Star Trek. Um, It's still the most shoplifted book in the entire world. Um, And so there's a a sense of this is important. Um, Why I also read it is it's not something that just happened 2,000 years ago, but we can still glean wisdom from the words that are written. And this really is our story. You know, if Revelation hadn't been written, we would be in this book. Like, it would, we would still be continuously cataloging the way that the Holy Spirit is manifesting and present in the church. And we're part of the church today, and so we would be in this book. And so it's, we're connected to this. This is where we come from and why we are who we are as Catholics and as Christians. And so um, we'll talk about why um, it's reliable, why it's important, Um as we talk about what it is, because um, we've got to understand what the Bible is in order to be able to to go into reading it properly. Mm. Like if we went to read Don Quixote and we're like, this is an actual scientific textbook, um, we probably would find very little science, but we'd have a very difficult time interpreting what was happening um, because it's, you know, it's a novel. So we have to know like the context of what um, what we're looking at. So what is the Bible? Are you asking me? What do you? What it's would you say? It's a very say? dense book that if you never read it before and you started at Genesis, you'd be very confused. <laughs> yes, yeah. You might be like, "Oh, these are cool stories," and you get to Exodus and be like, "Oh, I think I saw a movie about this once." Yeah. And you get to Leviticus and you'd be like, "This is weird and really boring," and I can't believe that they believe some of this stuff. Um, and then you just probably put it down, which happens to I think a lot of people who pick up the Bible and try to read it like a book, like uh-huh. from beginning to end. So the first thing to understand, like, the Bible as a whole, we believe that it is the inerrant, inspired word of God. So what does that mean? It means it is without error. That doesn't necessarily mean without typo, without contradiction. It means, like, it is it contains the truth. Um, and we have to understand the context it was written in to be able to understand what truth it contains. It's not always literal truth, but it contains the truth. It is without error. And that it was inspired by God. Now, does that mean that the Bible like fell from heaven and like landed in Jesus's lap or something like that? Yes. No. <laughs> I think a lot of people think that like right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he's like, uh, I made all you disciples some gift bags. There's a book in there that you're really gonna like. I highly recommend it. I wrote it myself. And then he just like no 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 like right up to heaven. And then all the disciples were like a Bible. And like that's not how it happened. Um, so it was inspired by God. But it was penned by human authors. Penned by human authors. And to be exact, some scholar, scholars and biblical theologians believe up to over 100 authors wrote 
the Bible. And so there's only 73 books in scripture. And so a lot of books have multiple parts. Like Isaiah is broken up into three parts that they believe have three separate authors. Um, Different um, books like wisdom books, like the Psalms and Proverbs, like were collected from a bunch of different writers and pieces of wisdom. And so it's difficult to know exactly how many, um, but a lot. A lot of people uh, wrote words that were eventually all amassed into this thing we call the Bible. Um, And the Bible, the word Bible comes from uh, the word Biblia, which actually means a collection of books. So when you open a Bible, you're not opening a book. It's like you're opening a library of 73 books. Mm -hmm. And so it's not meant to be read, as I said, left to right, beginning to end. Well, you do read left to right because we read English. In the original Hebrew, you actually read right to left. But uh, it's not meant to be read beginning to end. You're meant to read an individual book in its context from beginning to end and get the context and history and truth that lies in that book and then interpret it through the lens of the entire collection of the library, basically. So it's the same thing like, say if you were writing a, uh, a, sign, a paper for a scientific journal and you picked up one book on the science of this enzyme or something that you were studying, um, you would read that study from beginning to end. But you'd also have to understand that study within the context of everything that had been written about that enzyme or that particular field of science. And so you're judging it up against the library as a whole but you're not reading it from like everything that was published until now as if they were all communicating with each other and were all writing the same exact story in the same exact way. That would be really difficult to, to be able to understand what was, being, um, what was being communicated. So, right, Hannah? That's right. She's agreeing with you. She's agreeing. She's a very good uh, audience member. Um, so it's important to remember that. Like This is a collection of 73 books. That is in this library that we call the Bible. And it was written over the span of about 1,600 years. And so like the, the oldest that we believe that maybe the parts of the Old Testament were written were maybe around like 2,000 or to 1,500 B.C. Um, around that time of Moses. Because um, tradition holds that Moses or some of the disciples or followers of Moses wrote down the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and then from there histories, wisdom, um, prophetic books were written after um, and all collected into the Old Testament. And then the New Testament was written with basically within the span of a hundred years. Um, basically, some people believe as early as a couple years after Jesus died and, and rose and ascended into heaven, or um, as late as uh, the earliest being written in the year 50 AD, uh, until as late as maybe like 110, 120 AD. And so that's not a huge amount of time um, for the New Testament, and it was all written in a very quick span. Um, and pretty much every Christian religion, and in fact every canon, every biblical canon that exists among the Orthodox Christians, among Jude, um, among well, not Judaism because they don't acknowledge the New Testament, but among Catholics and among all other Christian denominations, our New Testaments are exactly the same. And so um, it's very significant that we all agree upon that and you know um despite it still being written over the span of you know 100 years by a lot of different people and was amassed thankfully in a list that everyone agrees with not so with the old testament but that might be for a different episode um but let's talk about the basic then structure of the bible um so i have to get this squirming baby to stop squirming yeah there we go. And I need to grab my Bible. So, really quick, I, 
something interesting happened a couple days ago. Um, somebody came up to me and showed me a book that they had found. And they had found it at a like secondhand store, mm-hmm. and it was a journal. And they were like, oh, this is weird, a journal at a secondhand store. And they opened it up, and each page was a testimony from somebody about their encounter with Christ. Wow. And it was it was a really cool, it was only like a couple pages full, but they had a cool idea of writing their own testimony and passing it along. Yeah. But it's kind of like, it's similar to the Bible. That yeah. They, there are those people with these encounters that Christ or God has um, given them the divine word and, you know, they've written that encounter down and that story down. And so we have all these stories that have then been put in a book into the yeah. Bible. And it was just an interesting thing that reminded me of that. Yeah, and at that time, they probably would have used the same type of word or language to describe that collection. It would be like a biblia, like a collection of books or a collection of stories. And so when we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is divided, as I said, first into the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we have the historical books, which all talk about the history of the Jewish people and how God was interacting with them, the covenants he made with them, which also is contained in the Torah. Um, it's also called the Pentateuch, the Torah, which is just the Greek word for first five books. Um, and then you either have within that history um, the books of Tobit, Judith, Esther, and First and Second Maccabees, or sometimes those are called like biblical novellas because they're more meant to be read as stories or historical stories. Whereas the other historical books are like someone was like sitting down like a scribe to recount like something that happened in history. It's not necessarily meant to be read as a story or a novel. Um, the novellas are more of a different way of writing a history. Um, kind of like we have, I'm trying to think of something like, um, like the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. The Odyssey would be like a novella. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you're reading, I don't know, like Josephus, the Hebrew his- historian, um, he would have like a very specific way he was writing about the history of the time. Um, so then you have uh, the wisdom books, um, which people are pretty familiar with. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Wisdom, and Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus. Um, and these are all books basically about how to live your daily life. Um, a lot of like daily morality. Um, Proverbs, um, I like to say, is like just a collection of Christian fortune cookies. Because um, you can read a proverb and kind of meditate on it the whole day. Because it's just like they're kind of one-line pieces of advice. The Psalms are all like books of songs, of praise and of contrition and thanksgiving and adoration. Um, and that was um, kind of the collection of the daily, like how we live our life as Hebrew people type of wisdom. Uh, and the prophetic books... Um, we have the major prophets. They're just called major because we have more written from them, not because they were more important, but because they just have longer books. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the minor prophets, um, which are the rest. Um, and so um, these prophets were writing or speaking at a time when the Hebrew people had broken their relationship with God, had turned from God, and there was a civil war in Israel between the north and the south, and then they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. Uh, and so it's all about like prophecies that this is going to happen. You're going to be taken from your homeland, and then once they're in their home, once they're away from their homeland, this is why you're here. But then God is going to save you. He's going to bring you back. Uh, and so the whole Old Testament is basically the story of the Jewish people from when they were created. Their stories about how the world began. Uh, the history of who they were and how they came to be in relationship with God, 
the daily wisdom on how to live your life because of that. And then when you break that, what happens and what prophecies were then being professed about how there would be consequences for the sinful actions and how God would have a plan to continuously redeem them. Um, and so you have a lot of foreshadowing and prophecies about this figure called the Messiah. Um, Messiah uh, is a Hebrew word. Christos or Christ is the Greek word, which both mean the anointed one, the one who was going to come and save and redeem. Um, and so that's the whole Old Testament. Um, and so if you're reading Psalms and you're thinking this is a historical book, you'd probably be really confused because it's written very poetically and you probably wouldn't be able to get a lot of clarity into who's saying what and what's happening at the time. So it helps to know the literary style that you are reading. Um, in our canon as Catholics, there are 46 books in the Old Testament. We have seven more than our Protestant brothers and sisters. Um, and that's because um, Martin Luther reverted to um, a Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. Um, and seven of the books in the Old Testament, we only have them in Greek. Um, and so we use the version that Jesus quoted because Greek was a common vernacular. He quoted the Greek canon of the Old Testament, and that has those seven extra books in it. Um, and so it's not necessarily that we added or they took out. It was more of a preference for translation. Mm -hmm. um, and Martin Luther wanting to return to what he thought was the most historically accurate, even though it's not the translation that Jesus himself quoted from. Um, so that's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is probably something we're all more familiar with. Um, you got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the Acts of the Apostles, which is the story of the early church. That was written by Luke, same Gospel of Luke, Luke. And then we have the letters of St. Paul, um, some of which are not are contested whether he actually wrote them, but a lot of them are attributed to him, from Romans basically to Hebrews, um, even though Hebrews is pretty much contested that it wasn't Paul who wrote it. And then we have some other ones called the Catholic Letters or Catholic Epistles, um, James, First and Second Peter, First through Third John, and Jude. And then we had Revelation, which is kind of in its own category. Um, not necessarily as many people interpret as a literal description of how the world is going to end, but it's more of a story of victory over evil that has already happened, is happening, and will happen. Um, and some details about what it might look like when Jesus comes again. But it's very much a story of victory over the devil and over evil, um, which we see in the battle between you know, the serpent and St. Michael the Archangel. Um, and so it's important to know that structure. Because, I mean, if you just open your Bible and you point to something and you end up in like Second Chronicles you know, or Leviticus, and you're like, I'm getting nothing, and this is really weird and really dense and really legalistic, um, it's important to know what you're reading. Because um, if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for wisdom, you can't just go anywhere. It'd probably be beneficial for you to go to one of the wisdom books or maybe something that was meant to communicate about how to be a Christian in daily life, like one of the letters or one of the Gospels. Um, so if you're starting to read the Bible, it's important just open your, your Bible to the table of contents and just get familiar with how it's all organized. Yeah, it does you a great disservice if you don't understand contextually like what is going on um, and then where like what the book was written for and the purpose of yeah. it um and then also what like was happening in those times did <clears throat> what was happening in those times greatly affected what was written yeah and so knowing kind of having kind of a backstory on that the footnotes of your bible help you a great deal especially yes. if you have a study bible mm -hmm. um those will help you out so much reading the beginning of the book where they typically will have the like preface yeah there's like an italicized text that yeah. tells you all about the structure of the book 
who wrote it, why yes. they wrote it, when they wrote it, um, when it was written. Um, I think I already said that, but like everything you need to know about the context yeah. and historical and literary structure of mm -hmm. the, the book itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really, really helps. Um, because we, we can like open, like you said, we can open it and then we can read a little bit of it and not understand any of it. Or we can be like, oh yeah, this is speaking to this and like completely misinterpret what is going on and then apply it to something that like God is like, no, that's actually not what I was going for there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it also helps to have the right translation. I think mm -hmm. a lot of Catholics have really bad translations lying around because the most prevalently available are things like the King James Version, um, which was written for a specific purpose. It was actually written to be very poetic. It wasn't written to be very accurate. Um, and it is uh, has the Protestant canon. It's missing seven books that we have in the Catholic canon. And so making sure that you have the correct translations. The church uses two primary translations um, and acknowledges the validity of one or two other ones. Um, but we use the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, we use that for all of our, like, theology. Um, that is considered the most, like, literarily, oh, yes, the most literarily accurate of um, translations. And then when we proclaim the readings at Mass, um, we use the New American Bible. And so if you want to hear what we're hearing at Mass, um, the great thing about the New American Bible is because it's proclaimed at Mass, it's what the people hear. All New American Bible translations have really good cross-references and footnotes written in them and really good description sections like Jenna was mentioning. Um, so get yourself a New American Bible. There's a revised edition. Um, and then make sure that you're um, using the footnotes and you're writing in it and you're reading those extra things to help explain what it is that you're reading and why it was written and not just opening it and being like, God inspire me, you know, like if you're looking for inspiration, you can find it anywhere. You can find it on like a fast food menu, you know, like, but if you really want to get, <laughs> God is really speaking, you know, and open yourself up in the right way to hear his voice, then it, it helps, I think, to know a little bit about the context of what you're reading and to be able to look in the right place. Yeah. My favorite thing to see is when people pull out their Bibles and their Bibles are super tattered. They have a ton of post-it notes or they're super written in or pages are falling out just because they use their Bible so much. Yeah. My, I just got a new Bible. So every time I open it, it kind of makes me sad because there's nothing in it yet. Yeah. I'm just like working through it slowly. But my old Bible, things would fall out of it because I had so much packed in there yeah and i'd be trying to talk and carrying my bible around and things would just be like dropping <laughs> behind me <clears throat> exactly so use your bible use those footnotes make yeah. sure you have a good translation um what also helps is knowing the literary style um so for instance for genesis like we don't read genesis like a science book because we know from the beginning section we know why it was written that it was written as uh, at least those first 11 chapters of genesis were written as stories or legends not that they didn't happen but like mythic tales have a sense of truth and a sense of reality in them that they're trying to teach us something they're more about the why of what happened rather than the who what where when so it's not like there was a scribe sitting there watching god create the world in seven days it's a story that was passed down from generation to generation to talk about why god created things and that he created them in a specific order mm -hmm. getting more and more complicated um, and the climax of which being the creation of man and then woman and their partnership with one another, that God saw that they were very good, that they were meant to be in relationship, and that he created us out of love. Um, that's what we interpret from that story. We don't interpret that it then saying, well, it's literally true, so evolu evolution doesn't exist, 
and the world was created 6,000 years ago because there's so much scientific record that shows that that is not valid or accurate. And so we have to take into account, you know, the real reason why these things were written. That's a good place to pause and say how our church works alongside science. Yes. <laughs> we do not. I remember telling a teen one time that a lot of stuff in the Old Testament is just not not to be taken literally. And she almost started crying. <laughs> She's like, wait, my idea of who God is and everything and reading the Bible, like it like broke her because yeah. she'd been reading everything so literally. And then she understood and it was better. And she's fine now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't believe us, like read Genesis chapters one and two, and you'll realize these are two different creation stories. Mm-hmm. God is depicted in two different ways. In the first one, he's depicted as this powerful, distant, like omni, um, omnipresent, omnipotent creator who creates like out of sheer power. Whereas, uh, and he creates animals and then man last. Whereas in the second chapter, God is walking in the garden. He's very anthropomorphic. He's very close to mankind. And he creates man and then creates all these animals as a partner for him. And when they don't work, when he's like, this isn't working, then he creates woman. And so there's a difference in order. There's a difference in how uh, God is described. And it's believed that those two stories are written by two different authors. Um, And so there's a lot of um, stories, or not stories, courses or research that you can read on your own about biblical criticism. And it's not criticizing the Bible and saying it's not real. It's about looking at the Bible from a critical standpoint in terms of literary styles, historical context, uh, how many authors, how many voices, why they were writing in the way that they did, uh, to help get to a deeper sense of the truth of what was being communicated. Uh, There are so many layers. Um, We're also dealing with the fact that they didn't write in English. And so that's something to remember. Like in the Bible, there are at least four different words that are commonly used for love in Greek, and they all have different meanings, but they're all translated as love in English. And so sometimes that those meanings can be lost a little bit. And so you can look up what's called an interlinear translation of the Bible. Um, and I do this all the time. I'll look, like, I'll look up like Greek interlinear, and it'll be a New Testament because the New Testament was written in Greek. And uh, I'll look up the verse. So I'll say like Greek interlinear Matthew 7, 7. And it'll show me the English, but then it'll show me word by word what the Greek is. And I can click on a Greek word and see what it actually means. Mm. And it gives me the definition. And it shows me also everywhere else in the Bible where that particular Greek word appears. Um, And so the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, some in Greek. And the New Testament primarily in Greek and some in Aramaic. And so it's important to know that, that certain things um, like punctuation, um, chapters and verses, those things weren't added till much later because the language, the original language didn't call for it. And so it takes a lot of study and the church has spent 2,000 years and continues to spend time trying to interpret the best possible translation of these things um, so that we can have as close to the different meaning as possible. Um, you know, sometimes emphasis is lost. Um, I talk about this when I talk about you know, reading something in another language or in a different context all the time. If you take the sentence, I never said she stole my money, you know, that can mean so many different things depending on where you put the emphasis. I never said she stole my money. 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 I never said she stole my money or I never said she stole my money. All those imply different things, right? That like, maybe I never said she stole my money. Maybe I typed it to someone. Maybe I implied it. 
Or I never said she stole my money. Well, maybe she stole my car. You know, like, so it depends on where the emphasis is to be able to determine, like, what is the real translation of this. So us on our own, we can't determine that. We need the wisdom of the church. We need the footnotes. We need to know the context to really get to know um, what the right interpretation is. And then as Catholics, when we're looking at scripture, we interpret scripture in um, different senses. So this is in the catechism um, that there are two main senses. There's the literal and the spiritual sense. And the spiritual sense is broken up into three different categories. So the literal sense of scripture is it means what it says it means. There's a passage in scripture, um, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, and it means, uh, it's, it says that um, if, you, uh, if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, that um, even a snake could bite you, um, a poisonous snake could bite you, and you will not be um, you will not die. And because of a literal translation of that verse, there are snake bite churches that exist in like West Virginia and in the Appalachian Mountains where these people will toss around rattlesnakes and some of them will let themselves be bitten and then they'll pray for healing. And sometimes it works, a lot of times it doesn't work because they're poisonous rattlesnakes. But um, they interpret that verse literally. Um, and so if we know the original context, we can know, okay, they're saying something um, why are they saying it this way? Did they literally mean that? And so we have to look deeper. And so there are other senses, spiritual senses of scripture that we can use to interpret. And those are moral, allegorical, and anagogical. So moral is, it teaches us how to act. And so that verse can be interpreted morally as, if we're dealing with any type of evil, any type of sin, any type of darkness, uh, any threat of death, we look to Jesus for redemption, for healing, for um, the path to eternal life, that he is the victor over death. Uh, and so we act in such a way to avoid those evil situations, to avoid this, the quote-unquote rattlesnakes of life, and to seek him. Um, allegorical, we know that um, allegorical has to do with faith and symbolism. And so um, allegorically, a, a snake, a serpent, represents the devil. Mm -hmm. um, we also know in the Old Testament, there's a story in the book of Numbers about the bronze serpent, and that when... They were being stung or bitten by seraph serpents in the desert. Moses was told by God to erect this thing of the bronze serpent, and everyone looks at it, and they'll be healed. And so it's pointing back to that, but that is a foreshadowing of the cross. That when we're being stung by the sin, the stain of sin, we look to Jesus on the cross, and we are forgiven. And so allegorically, we can start to see the symbolism that's happening. And then the last thing is anagogical, which is a fancy way of talking about destiny or eternal life. And so... We can look at that and say like, okay, if we have the stain of sin on our soul and we don't look to Jesus, then there's going to be a consequence to that. So there are a lot of different layers to interpret this. And it doesn't mean that they're all equally as valid anymore uh, or, if, or ever intended to be interpreted only in one way. So that verse may never have been intended to be interpreted literally. It may have been pointing just back to the bronze serpent story. Um, and probably when you read that verse, there's a cross reference there, a little letter and you'll look and it'll probably say like numbers something and you go back and that's that story. It's referencing that. So it's important to know that we don't just interpret the Bible literally. So if you're ever in a situation where you're like, this is super dense, I don't know what this means, to recognize that it's probably not just surface level, like, and there's deeper meanings. Um, and so that's kind of a basic idea of what scripture is and how we look at scripture as Catholics. But I think the main question here is like, how is scripture going to be relevant to you and to me? And what are some obstacles that you and I have to maybe incorporating scripture into our daily life? What do you think, Joe? What are some obstacles that people have? Like why they don't read the Bible? 
why it's not part of their regular prayer life? Um, I think for a lot of people, it can be boring. I know for myself sometimes, I'm like, I don't want to read my Bible. It can be boring. It can be um, just seem very overwhelming to open your Bible and to read your Bible if you don't know where to start or you don't necessarily have the time to look at the backstory and mm-hmm. understand where the, the author's coming from. Um, it might just not be part of your daily routine that you haven't like incorporated it into your daily routine. There's a lot of different... I don't know. There's just so many different reasons I get from people why they don't open their Bible. Yeah. Or if sometimes if you're Catholic, it's not emphasized as something that needs to be done in your daily prayer. <laughs> it's yeah. a forgotten prayer. <laughs> yeah. Well, historically in the church too, people would criticize Catholicism because Bibles would be chained up in churches or only the priests would have access to them. And there were different reasons for that. It was because there weren't a lot of copies available until the printing press was in existence. Yeah. And then the church was hesitant to allow people to have personal interpretation of Scripture because then you have all these other denominations or lack of understanding of what passages really mean because you're disconnecting it from the rich tradition and study that the church has already done over thousands of years. And so they want to make they don't want people not to have a Bible, but they want to make sure that people know how to interpret it. And yeah. so how do we... Sorry, I was going to say, back then they didn't have footnotes. Yes, yeah, there were no <laughs> it footnotes. It wasn't like they had study Bibles. As I said, there weren't punctuation marks. <laughs> Everything ran together, especially in Latin. It was just all letters. And like you needed to be very scholarly and well-versed to be able to even read Scripture, let alone interpret it. And so we have a great benefit now to be able to open a Bible and have some sense of being able to be in communication with God in this way. So how do we address some of these obstacles? Um, What if we just don't see that the Bible is important or we don't have any sense of reverence for it? And we kind of touched upon this, but like you can't, you can't deny the fact that the Bible is one of the most influential works of all time. And so it's important, it's almost our responsibility as people who live in the Western world in the modern age to know the foundations that built who we are and why we do things the way that we do. There are sayings that are said in the secular world all the time that come straight from the Bible. An eye for an eye, like that's from the Bible. Um, you know, all all these different things come from Scripture. And so it's important to know that. Also, if we're going to Mass, 90% of the Mass is, is straight out of the Bible. And so you have a sense of familiarity for it. And if you're Catholic, like... That is important. It's important to know what we're doing every week, not just as a mindless ritual that we go through the motions of. But if someone were to ask you at the end of your life, like, why do you go to Mass? Why would you do the same thing every single Sunday for 90 years and you don't have an answer? That's kind of really irresponsible on our part. And if everything we're doing is rooted in Scripture, everything we're saying at Mass and everything we're experiencing, then part of that is our responsibility to go and investigate it. And so whether you're completely disconnected from any concept of a relationship with God or you're a Catholic or Christian who's devoted and you're just not sure how to get into the Bible or see that it's important, just acknowledge like how influential that is. Um, you know, we read tons of influential works all the time from other authors, you know, like the Odyssey or like... Um, I'm not a very well-read person, but like the Russian novels and Jane Eyre and Shakespeare yeah. and all these different and poetry and all these different things that are have huge historical significance. Um, and so if you don't see that the Bible is important, I just want to encourage you to think about it that way. Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, um, Joshua would talk about the book of the law that existed, that Torah. And he said, uh, do not let this book of the law depart from your lips. Recite it day by day and by night, that you may carefully observe all that is written in it. 
then you will attain your goal, then you will succeed. There's always been this belief that there was this importance, even if it was just the law, to know it and to let it be part of our daily life. And so it is important. Um, but if we don't feel that it's relevant or that it's boring, um, there's this practice that I really want to encourage you all to look into. It's called Lexio Divina. If you've never heard it before, it's called divine reading. And it's a way of praying with the Bible. And I would encourage you to maybe use one of the Gospels or go to one of the wisdom books like Psalms or Proverbs to do this. And you basically pick a verse or a very short passage and you read through it four times. And the first time, you're just getting a picture of what's being said. The second time, you see if a word or a phrase stands out. You're allowing scripture to speak to you, to spark some memory. And it might be an insignificant word. You're not meant to be this scriptural scholar who's trying to interpret the passage for the world. You're trying to see how it's resonating with you. And so there are times I read a Bible verse and the word the stands out. And I don't know why. It just like jumps off the page and sparks some thought in my mind or brings me back to some memory. You hold on to that. And then the third time you read it, you kind of confirm whatever that was. And then you kind of meditate on why is this standing out? Um, why God are you? How are you trying to speak to me? Why did you let this resonate with me? And then the last time after you read it, you just listen. You listen for him to answer. You listen for him to reveal to you more about why that stood out. Um, and that's a really easy practice. It helps you memorize verses you like. And it also helps you see that um, the Bible is relevant to you today. And so that word might stand out and you go through that process. And then you might just journal about what your experience is. And that whole process, if you pick a short verse, the whole process will take you 10 minutes. You know, maybe 15 minutes if you're a long journaler um, or you pick a longer passage. But everyone can spare 10 minutes at some part of their day. Um, you can at least just wake up 10 minutes earlier or go to bed 10 minutes later. That's something that you can do to schedule into your day. And that has to do with another obstacle that people have is I don't have the time. I don't have the time to read the Bible. The Bible's so long. I remember one time my dad, uh, when I was very young, he sat down with a goal like, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. And he made a commitment to do it. In retrospect, not a smart way to read the Bible, but he did it. He read it. He sat down. He devoted time every day to read the Bible cover to cover. And it's just like any appointment, any relationship, any meeting that we have, we need to schedule the time in. You know, Jen and I, we both have newborns. We're both married. We both are full-time youth ministers. If we didn't say like, hey, we need to plan next time when we're together, when's the next time we're going to meet? It would be weeks before we were like, man, I really miss her, you know, or I really miss him. Like, we haven't seen each other. Why hasn't this happened? Like, we have to be cognizant about planning this. It's the same thing with God. You need to have your meeting, your appointment with God every single day. I think that's a book, right? Appointment with God? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, it's a popular book that's like going around right now. Um, and schedule that time into your day. There are also people who go online and find these schedules of like Bible in a year or Bible in three years. And it's a schedule that you can follow every day or every week that if you read what it suggests, by the end of that time, you'll have read the entire Bible in its proper context. Um, it's They're very... Um, they're broken up. And it's they're very like intentional about how they organize Old it. Testament, Psalm, or like Genesis. I, I was just doing one. Genesis, Psalm, and then you do a New Testament book. Yeah. You read like an excerpt. Yeah. And then every day of the year, we have readings assigned to that day. Yeah. So you can just look up Catholic readings of the day. The first link that pops up in Google is to the USCCB site. You click on it, and it'll show you the readings for that day. And it's always an Old Testament reading. Uh, or New Testament reading for the first reading, a psalm and a gospel passage. And they all have a related theme or message. And so maybe you just do that. You do Alexio Divina on one or all of those. You journal about it. And that's your prayer time with scripture that day. Um, that's something that can be really great about um, entering into scripture. If you go to Mass or if you pray the daily readings, 
every day for three years, you'll hear 90% of the Bible. But if you only go on Sunday, you'll only hear, uh, and you do that for three years, for the three-year cycle of Sunday readings, you'll only hear about 50 to 60% of the Bible. And you're only hearing those stories once. A lot of them are repeated throughout the week during the daily mass cycle, which is a two-year cycle. Um, and so it's a great way to just rehear stories. I started doing this like almost two years ago now, and I still encounter stories that I'm like, I've never heard this story from scripture in my entire life. And some of them are in the gospels. And I've just like glossed over it or completely forgot that it was there. Um, like the one where there's the, the Jesus sends the disciples to fish the coin out of the fish's oh, mouth. Yeah. I've read that for the first time like six months ago and I never knew that story existed. And it's like little passages like that. It was like a three verse story. Yeah. Um, you know, like I was totally missing out on. And so schedule that time in. Um, you have sorry, to show up though. Yes. Because I, I do that where I'll schedule my time and then I don't show up. <laughs> it can't become you know like what? a to-do list item. Yeah. 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 You actually have to show up and be present. And even if it's a reading that you've already read and you've heard a million times, God still will speak to you to yeah. through it and make it new to your heart yeah you can look up ignatian reflections too like and it's a practice of how how to enter into the story and use your senses to kind of notice different things like what time of day is it what are the smells the sounds the feelings of this story who's there what do they look like what are they saying um, what's their tone and really make it a story that you're living in and you'll notice brand new things if you set aside your previous expectations of a story um, and it'll be incredible, kind of the things you notice. The last obstacle that Jenna mentioned also was a lack of like understanding or how dense the Bible may be. You maybe don't have the vocabulary, you don't really know how to interpret it. You have the footnotes, um, that's a huge help. There are also things called biblical commentaries mm -hmm. that people have written that you can read in conjunction with the Bible. I highly recommend the New Jerome Biblical Commentary, it's a really simple one. Um, your church probably has one. They probably have one you can check out at a library, or you can even buy them on Amazon for pretty cheap. And there are online commentaries, too, that are free. Um, and so it's not a concordance. A concordance is a collection of how many times this word appears in the Bible. So if you look to a concordance and you want to say, I want to know everywhere where it says the word jackal in Scripture, which does appear in Scripture, only like once or twice, but I want to know everywhere that this appears, it'll tell you the exact verses. That's a concordance. But a commentary goes verse by verse, and it tells you the context. And it gives you more information that doesn't exist in the footnotes. Um, but also to recognize, like, you are a theologian, whether you know it or not. Like, if you are talking about God, that's what theology is. Like, God, Theo, and Logos, words. Like, words with God, words about God. And if you are having those conversations about God, if you're entering into conversation with him, you're a theologian. Like, you don't need a degree to do that. You might have interpretations that might be misinformed or misunderstood that need to be guided into the right direction, but that's what footnotes and commentary are for. But don't feel like you can't understand the Bible because you didn't go to school for it or because you don't teach it. Like, you can every day receive inspiration from Scripture through prayer and through reading. And so I just really want to encourage you, like, this is your story. These words are as true now as they were 2,000 years ago when they were written. And they're speaking new wisdom and new truth into our life every single day. Um, and that's such a beautiful thing to be able to experience. Um, and so a couple other tips on how to start reading. Um, there's this great mass journal called Every Sacred Sunday that um, they're doing pre-sales right now. I think they actually end on Wednesday, so it'll be 
before this podcast comes out. Bummer. But um, you can still buy them on regular sale. And they're uh, weekly mass journals that have the readings printed in them. And they let they have spaces for you to write words that stood out to you, prayer intentions for that mass. It's a really beautifully designed mass journal um, that's called Every Sacred Sunday. Um, you could also find a Bible study or start one. Um, all you need is this practice of Lexio Divina and maybe a good commentary. Um, and that's all you really need to start a Bible study uh, or find one that already exists. Um, read those readings of the day or for at least for the upcoming Sunday and journal about them. Um, do you have any other tips on how to start reading? Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just do it. I mean, there, I feel like our society has fallen away from reading in general. And so for a lot of us, it's really hard to sit down and have the attention span to read yeah so starting small don't start um reading and expect yourself to read a whole chapter yeah. or do something massive because the reality is you probably don't have the attention span if you're not used to reading a lot yeah so start small um but just start and start yeah. somewhere the gospels are a great place to start mm-hmm. um reading the daily readings that's what i do also and i just kind of dive in doing that um Write in your journal or, or write in your uh, Bible too. Also, yes. I think that really, really helps. And like highlighting things that really stand out to you, because later on looking back, you're like, oh yeah, that's what stood out yeah. to me, or that's what I was thinking at that time. But um, make it something interactive so that maybe it grabs your attention more, and you will have fun with it a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe write question marks, exclamation points. Yeah. You know, find the answers to that. And when I like when I teach people music, like guitar or something like that, I tell them, pick up your guitar every day. Even if you don't play it, just pick it up, put it back down. Same thing goes with your Bible. Like, get in the practice of picking it up and opening it every day. And I agree. Like, the Gospels are a great place to start. The Psalms are a really beautiful place to do Lexio Divina. Um, The Gospels are better for, like, Ignatian spiritual reflection. Really putting yourself in the narrative stories and, like, allowing yourself to see what character you relate to or what you observe about what's happening if you put yourself in the story. So start in those two places, the Psalms and the Gospels. Pick one. Uh, and then when you finish those, like go to maybe a letter in the New Testament and then maybe read one of those Old Testament novellas like Job or Tobit or Esther. And then maybe go back to Genesis and start reading those stories that form, you know, the Jewish people. Um, the last things you should read, like read them eventually, but the last things you should read are like Revelation, Leviticus, First and Second Chronicles just because they're really dry and like boring. Um... Yeah, those are probably the ones I would caution people against the most. The rest can kind of, you can glean some wisdom from it. You should read those eventually, but once you understand their proper context, um, don't start there, like by any means. But, um, you know, start in those books that are really going to speak to you and help you get to know Jesus and help you get to know how people understand their relationship with God. And those books, Psalms and the Gospels, really, really do that beautifully. Um, So I want to hand it over to Jenna. Talk a little bit about our saint for this episode. Ooh, ooh. Saint. So I picked Saint Jerome for this. You. Um, and he was kind of a radical individual that was a little weird. <laughs> he also Aren't put all a the lot best of ones. <laughs> Yeah. He put a lot of people off also. But um, he was born in three hundred forty two in a town that now today was probably like Croatia. Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So he was born there um, or around that area, they say. He's the patron saint of, good morning, of archaeologists, um, biblical scholars, librarians, students, and then also translators. And mm-hmm. so when he was young, 
he was um, educated by a very famous Roman who was um, a grammarian. Is that someone who studies grammar? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, that's what they called him. Um, and okay, from very young age, he learned Latin and Greek, and so. He understood these languages very, very well. And then around the age of 12, he ended up going to Rome to study more grammar, philosophy, and rhetoric. Um, And it was likely during that time of his training of rhetoric, he considered a law career. Um, But he ended up kind of very quickly losing his morals during that time in Rome. And um, he began pursuing different kind of pleasures and really pursuing women and so this is kind of where he gets a little weird (laughs) (laughs) but to kind of recognize his guilt and also like realize the sin that he was encountering he go to the catacombs and the crypts in rome and imagine himself in hell (laughs) and do some really weird stuff Mm. and so then um he would do it every single sunday even though he wasn't christian even though he wasn't Christian, he realized what he was doing was wrong. And so he, like, continued to frighten himself for a time, but he wouldn't change his ways. And so there was a friend of his that I'm not even going to try and say his name, um, but the friend ended up being a positive influence, a positive Christian influence, and persuading him to become Christian. And so for a time he didn't, but eventually he did become Christian, and that is... Um, the um, turning point in his life where he realized he wanted to study um, theology and really study the books. And so he ended up returning to the place of his birth and um, there was a long drawn out, I guess, heresy and um, like war going on. And he ended up befriending these two future saints. Um, Two saints, I'm also not even gonna try and say their name. I'm going to call them C and H. They're like Chromastus and Hilodorus, I think. is. Okay, don't know I don't them, know them. But... That's why I'm not going to try. <laughs> but they were um, like well-known for teaching Orthodox theology. And Ooh. so he fell into friendship with them. And they really influenced him to, to dive into theology more. And um, he recognized that because of his past sins and his past desires that he wanted to um, be like the first generation of desert fathers, he called them. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up um, leaving and he traveled to Syria. And so in his travel to Syria, he ended up going and kind of living in the desert and um, becoming um, somebody that would like not eat he wouldn't um have sex obviously and Mm -hmm. he wouldn't like dive into those um, desires he would just like completely remove himself from everything and not eat or do anything um and so he ended up being called back to the church and um he ended up being a spiritual father for a group of nuns that he had befriended and so after all of this kind of his formation time he dove into um translating the bible and so for him he really believed that understanding who christ was you had to learn hebrew and you had to um encounter christ in the hebrew text Hmm. and so he began really studying hebrew um he began to translate the bible um and he translated it from hebrew and old latin and so he was very very well known for this specific thing of studying the translations and studying um 
the Bible. And so St. Jerome, he's a father, what, what do we call him? He's, um, I don't know if he's classified as a father of the church or if he's one of the doctors of the church. I'm I think not, he might be a doctor of the I w- church. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a doctor of the church, church, um, for this specific thing. And so on September 30th, um, 420, he ended up passing away, but he was well known for how he studied the Bible, but also how he put off a lot of people. Um, one person said he he's well known as one of the crankier saints. <laughs> he just did not mix well with people. No. So one of his quotes is, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So he really truly believed that in order for you to know who Christ was, what his mission was, and how he loved you, you needed to read scripture. So that is St. Jerome. Nice. I was trying to look up if he's a doctor of the church. Um, But yeah, he's a good person to look for for inspiration, to ask for his intercession if you really want to start getting involved in um, incorporating scripture into your daily life. Um, You know, it says in scripture, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so like the word of God is, it's living and effective, like it says in Hebrews, sharper than any two-edged sword. Like this is something that needs to be part of our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, if this is something that you are not um, well-versed in, that's not part of your life, if you see as intimidating or very dense, or um, maybe you just don't have a good Bible, like go get one and just start doing this little by little because um, some of the saints, it's attributed to St. Ambrose and St. Isidore of Seville, but they all have sayings that kind of go like, when we pray, we speak to God, but when we read scripture, he speaks to us. And if you've ever been in that situation where you're like, I don't hear God's voice. So many people experience God and I don't. Maybe you're being called to dive into his word a little bit more. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So we hope this episode has been beneficial for you in your prayer life. Um, and we hope that you will please rate and review this podcast. If you haven't yet, share it with a friend that you think might benefit from it. Follow us on social media so you can like and follow our posts. We also have a weekly blog that's a reflection on the psalm for that upcoming Sunday. Um, And you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month to become one of our sponsors. And you get access to patron-only content, episode previews, so you can give us specific suggestions and questions that you want us to answer for every episode. And so we really appreciate all of our patrons, especially Justine, our newest patron. I think I shouted her out on the last episode with Erica and I, but just want to make sure that she gets the awesome recognition she deserves for supporting us. Thank you. Um, And so all of that information can be found on our website manafoodforthought.com you can email us there you can comment on our our podcast episodes and our blogs and you can find all of our social media there uh, and access to our Patreon page as well so thank you for listening and until next time we will see you in the Eucharist Bye. bye